Hi, and welcome back to A Feminist Therapist, a podcast at the crossroads of politics and mental health. I'm your host, David Averick, psychotherapist and social worker broadcasting to you from Baltimore, Maryland. Today's installment requires a content warning because we are going to discuss explicit sexual content, including the sexual abuse of minor children. In today's installment, episode 7, we're going to conclude our conversation about America's Most Cancelled. And we're going to pick up right where we left off in episode 6, which was in the middle of a conversation about projective identification. So in psychology, projective identification is a phenomenon where if there's something that I don't like about myself, and I can't acknowledge that thing because it's culturally taboo or it freaks me out in some way, so what I'll do is instead I'll locate that problem in somebody else and then I'll punish them for it. That's projective ID. So our primary example of projective identification on the macro level was the American criminal justice system, which according to this theory is a way for white people to punish people of color for behaving in ways that are unacceptable, for example, by taking drugs, which white people also do, but are unwilling or unable to accept about themselves. So now that we have an idea about how projective identification works, we can talk more about sex offenders because, you guessed it, just in the way that black and brown people are convenient societal scapegoats for white guilt around their own criminality and drug use, sex offenders serve the purpose of managing our collective guilt and shame that comes from our fascination with sex, especially sex that isn't like the hetero missionary position between two cisgender married people. Because remember, being gay was itself a crime in this country until very recently. And in some places in the world, it's punishable by death. So before we talk about sex crime itself, we need to look briefly at sex offender registries. Like the war on drugs, like mass incarceration, sex offender registries are bad social policy. And fundamentally, this is because they are retributive in nature, not restorative. They are about punishment, not fixing the problem, and they do not address the root causes of the problem at hand, one of which is, as we have discussed, rape culture and the patriarchy and a broader imbalance of social power. When it comes to sex offender registries, the long and short of it is that research has not demonstrated that they are effective at reducing the risk of reoffense. Which is to say, while there is some data that links registries to the broader reduction in sex crime that we talked about earlier, other data does not find any connection between the two things. And there is absolutely no data indicating that the community notification part of registries, that is, making sex offender registries public, online, and searchable, has any benefit to the public whatsoever. That shit is just pure projective identification. The registries also cost a bunch of money to taxpayers to maintain them, and they're also based on this false presumption, again, which research has not demonstrated to be true, that somebody who commits a sex offense is necessarily at high risk of reoffending. Again, research has never proven that statement to be true. In fact, what we know now is that there are risk categories, and there are some types of offenders who are more likely to reoffend than others. Reoffense rates for sex offenses have been measured at between 3 and 14% over a three-year period, with those rates falling even further over time the longer a person lives stably in a community. 
personally, I find the idea of a public sex offender registry to be fairly arbitrary post-incarceration. Like, why is it that I'm able to look up a list of who in my neighborhood has looked at illegal pornography, but there's no list of the people in my neighborhood who commit murders or who break into houses and steal stuff? The answer is because those people, even though they have done bad things, still have access to some of their civil rights. Sex offender registries bear the classic marks of bad public policy in that they do not do what they're supposed to do and they cause more problems than they solve. One of the problems is that lots of people end up on the registries who do not deserve to be there. And that's because the term sex offender itself is very capricious and elastic. It changes over time and from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. In 12 states in this country, you can end up on the sex offender registry for taking a piss in public. In 29 states, teenagers who have consensual sex with other teenagers can be put on the registry, sometimes for life. Now there's this new fad, and it was referenced recently on the HBO show Euphoria, which I'm a fan of and all caught up, is that teens who send nude selfies or who pass around nude selfies of other kids at their school can end up facing child pornography charges, which will land them on the registries and mess up their lives forever. Because that's the other thing about the registry is that once you're on it, you're canceled. You experience a very intense form of social death. The shame is paralyzing because, again, sex offenders are the most stigmatized members of American society. Finding over-the-table legal paid work becomes nearly impossible. Lots of states also have laws restricting where sex offenders are able to live, and that creates homelessness by restricting housing choice and facilitating landlord discrimination. There's a really good documentary on this topic about a trailer park in Florida where sex offenders live in a state of quarantine. Basically, it's a ghetto for sex offenders. This documentary is called Pervert Park, and I highly recommend this film, even though it's not an easy watch. What I like about this movie is that it allows sex offenders to speak for themselves rather than be spoken about abstractly. Because of how projective identification works on the individual level, it's very, very easy for us to take absolutely zero interest in the actual lives and experiences of criminal offenders, even though their experiences are just as valid and nuanced and complex as our own. To us, who aren't on the sex offender registry, sex offenders are not complex people. They exist in our minds primarily to be punished, so that we can experience relief from our own anxieties about sex. Again, projective identification at work. Another problem with sex offender registries is that they take a very diverse group of individuals and they essentialize them. What that means is that they boil them down to a very reduced category. So there's actually an incredible amount of diversity in terms of the type of behaviors that can land someone on the sex offender registry, as we just discussed. Also, the motivations for engaging in problematic sexual behavior are very diverse as well. But when anybody hears the term sex offender, the first thing they think is rapist or pedophile. One commonality I have encountered in my clinical work with sex offenders is the compulsive use of sexuality to manage stress or anxiety. Now, this type of behavior is certainly not limited to sex offenders. A lot of people use sex and porn and masturbation as a way to reduce unpleasant internal feelings. However, being on the sex offender registry is so psychologically damaging and so emotionally painful that for an offender who lacks other coping skills, the shame, fear, and discrimination that invariably goes along with being on the registry 
can have the consequence of actually increasing the likelihood that a person will reoffend sexually. Because this is how humans tend to work. In the absence of new strategies, we use the skills we have in order to cope and survive the best we can. So, like it or not, the retributive tactic of putting somebody on a public registry for sex offenders is just not the same thing as helping them figure out how to acquire better coping skills that are more pro-social and do not involve causing harm to other people. That would represent a restorative model of criminal justice. If as a society we actually cared about victims of sex crime, and we cared about preventing future sex crimes, wouldn't restoration be our focus? Figuring out how to actually prevent sex offenses from occurring in the first place? In this way, we need to acknowledge that sex offender registries do not serve their nominal purpose of preventing sex crime from happening. In fact, they have the opposite impact by placing unrelenting severe psychological stress on individuals who have already demonstrated that they just don't know how to act right. Philip Garrido is a sort of case in point here. He was a registered sex offender in California who kidnapped J.C. Dugard and held her captive for 18 years in his backyard in the town of Antioch. He raped her countless times. She gave birth to two kids in a soundproof shed. Completely fucking insane. Because of his legal status as a registered sex offender, Garrido received numerous visits from parole officers and social workers during the entire time that he was holding Dugard in captivity. The registry, the surveillance, the public money spent on the salaries of those workers going to his home, none of that did anything to help J.C. Dugard. So what would have helped? To answer that question, we have to ask, what enabled Garrido and his wife, who was his accomplice, to do what he did in the first place? And this is my feminist argument, that the issue here is one of patriarchy. We should not be taking it for granted that Garrido believed he had the right to do what he did, that he was entitled to his actions. So to advance this argument, I'm going to cite the Wikipedia page about Dugard's kidnapping. And so if you're not into me using Wikipedia as a source, that's fine. This is, however, a particularly thorough Wikipedia article with over 100 citations, including Dugard's two published memoirs. So the article reports that Garrido believed that Dugard, quote, would help him with his sexual problems because society had ignored him, end quote. So right here, this is what I'm talking about when I say that rape is bound up in our social culture, specifically in the idea that men are entitled to sex. This is the unconscious logic that underlies rape and sexual violence, kidnapping, sex abuse of minors. Because again, women are not the ones committing these offenses by and large. They may be assisting male perpetrators, as Garrido's wife did in this case. Or, like the mother and grandmother that we talked about in the previous episode, who may cover up sexual abuse within a family. But what we find deeply rooted in both Christianity and American culture are two ideas that lead to rape. First, the notion that women owe men sex. And second, the idea that women are temptresses, and that men cannot be held responsible for their own sexual desires. That men quote-unquote lose control when they're sexually aroused, and it's women's responsibility to not get themselves raped by men. 
to not dress provocatively, to not drink alcohol. This is the logic of victim blaming, and it's part of that one-two punch of the patriarchy, harm and then gaslighting. I find it deeply unpersuasive to argue that men are wired to be like this, that it's some sort of genetic or biological issue. Once we embrace feminism, once our laws and our child-rearing practices and our media reflect the radical concept that men are not superior to women, that they have no intrinsic right to subjugate and dominate women, that is when I would be really curious to see what happens to rates of sexual violence. If they still don't budge, then I would become more open to this idea of biological determinism, that men are wired to dominate women sexually. Last note about the politics of sex offender registries. Even though they suck, we're basically stuck with them. That's because the only people who have the power to change how registries work, which is our elected officials, our lawmakers, they will never reform these laws, because if they tried to, their political opponents would immediately seize on the opportunity to call them soft on crime, friendly to pedophiles, stuff like that. It's all about optics, which is policymaking being influenced by how something looks rather than what's actually in the best interest of the public. Patty Wetterling understands this. She's the mom of Jacob Wetterling, a little boy from Minnesota who, in 1989, was abducted, sexually abused, and then murdered. This was a horrific crime perpetrated against an innocent child. One of those things that just shouldn't happen. They made a popular podcast about the Wetterling case called In the Dark. Patty later became a victim's rights activist, and her activism was formative in passing the federal law in 1994 creating sex offender registries. But now Patty Wetterling has changed her tune. Having been at the front lines of sex offender policy for decades, she now believes that we need to reform the registries. But because no politician who's trying to get reelected would ever attach her or his name to any bill seeking to do away with sex offender registries, they're not going anyplace. To be clear, I am not necessarily in favor of abolishing sex offender registries entirely. I think that we need to know a lot more than we currently do about how to assess recidivism risk for sex offenses, though we definitely know more now than we used to. At this point, at the very least, I believe the registries ought to be made private for the use of law enforcement only, given that there is no proven benefit and significant proven harm that comes from their being made public. In this episode, I've been arguing that sex crime is broadly linked to how society is set up, that at the heart of sexual violence we find rape culture and patriarchal manifestations of power, which is to say, men's conscious or unconscious beliefs that their right to sex outweighs the rights of others to not be abused. Or in the case of the quote, perfect gentleman, Elliot Rogers, being murdered with an assault weapon. This is definitely the type of argument that you would hear a social worker like myself make, that the social environment exerts significant influence over human behavior which it does. But of course, it's not the whole story because individual development and neurobiology plays a role too. Now, let's take a look at Jeff Epstein. Based on the average age of his victims, and Epstein's youngest victim, as far as we know, was 14. Epstein would probably not qualify for a diagnosis of pedophilia, which refers to being sexually attracted to young kids, kids that have not gone through puberty. 
having a sexual attraction to minors who are going through puberty but are still too young to consent to sex is a different condition that's known as hebophilia. Both pedophilia and hebophilia are examples of what are called chronophilias, which are sexual interests based on age. At the other end of the chronophilia spectrum, you have gerontophilia, a sexual interest in elderly people. Chronophilias themselves are a subset of paraphilias, the psychology term to describe certain non-normative forms of sexuality, including fetishes. The current iteration of the DSM includes eight paraphilic diagnoses, voyeuristic disorder, exhibitionistic disorder, frauderistic disorder, sexual masochism disorder, sexual sadism disorder, pedophilic disorder, fetishistic disorder, and transvestic disorder. The DSM chose to list these ones either because they are reasonably common or because they're associated with the risk of harm to self or others, and hence they are more likely to be a target of clinical or forensic attention. Important side note here, when talking about this stuff, we have to differentiate between a paraphilia and a paraphilic disorder. For example, frauding is a sex act that consists of rubbing up against someone or something in a sexual way. It comes from the French word frotter, which means to rub. In eighth grade, it was what we called dry humping. Frauderistic disorder, on the other hand, is when frauding causes problems. For example, a guy I once knew who would get on crowded subway cars and rub his erection against women. He was getting aroused in part by the lack of consent. So the bad news about hebophilia is that it is fairly common. If you want proof, then just log on to Pornhub and notice the section called Barely Legal. One investigation of hebophilia that is very instructive but very difficult to watch is a documentary film called Very Young Girls. This is one of the hardest movies I've ever watched, and it's about sex trafficking, underage sex workers, and the efforts of a nonprofit agency trying to help these girls exit the life. It also focuses on the psychologically and emotionally abusive relationships between pimps and sex workers. There are a couple scenes that really stayed with me from this movie. One of them is the footage they show of what's called John School. John School is a form of criminal diversion in Brooklyn for men who get picked up by undercover cops for soliciting sex. And basically, instead of having to go to jail, the Johns sit through five hours of lectures about the evils of sex trafficking. So in theory, I'm not opposed to this concept because I really like diversion programs as opposed to incarceration. That's because diversion programs are restorative in nature rather than retributive. Drug courts are an excellent and effective example of criminal diversion. They help people and they save the system tons of money. But the film shows this huge room with hundreds of men, including plenty of Orthodox Jews, laughing and making cruel jokes to one another during the presentations about underage sex trafficking. The behavior is completely revolting. It's patriarchy at its finest. That said, the epidemiology, that is, the rates and distribution of hebophilia or pedophilia in the general population is quite difficult to measure. Because what are we actually measuring? Are we measuring sexual interest in minors or the likelihood of actual sexual abuse of minors? We cannot assume that these are the same thing. What we know from data is that just because somebody is sexually attracted to underage individuals, it doesn't mean that they're going to abuse them. This is an important distinction because, as we're going to discuss in a minute, 
pedophilia is in fact a sexual orientation akin to being straight or gay or bisexual or queer. You just don't get to choose what turns you on sexually, and you don't choose who you're attracted to. So obviously, pedophilia as a sexual orientation is deeply problematic because children and young adolescents are not capable of consenting to sex with an adult. As such, we may justifiably find these sexual interests disturbing. But simply possessing a sexual orientation, one that you didn't choose, does that mean that you should lose access to your civil rights? In fact, in 20 states, there is a statute known as civil commitment, which means that an individual can be detained in a locked facility indefinitely based on the suspicion that they will commit further sex offenses if released. How these determinations are made is problematic because it's not something that can be predicted with accuracy based on the tools currently available. The population of civilly detained people includes prisoners with no convictions being held for years and years pre-trial. These facilities are like the rest of our country's jails and prisons, unsafe, unsanitary, violent, and under-scrutinized. This is not an original opinion, but I think that if you want to know what a given society is really like, then you should examine how it treats its most marginal members, its prisoners, its homeless people. In these regards, America doesn't pass the smell test. Anyhow, distinguishing between someone who's attracted to minors and someone who poses a threat to minors is therefore a crucial task for law enforcement. Unfortunately, it's not a question with an easy answer. Despite psychology's desperate wish to be taken seriously by medicine as a hard science, human behavior, sexual behavior perhaps in particular, defies efforts at quantification, prediction, algorithmization. Now, I'm definitely not an expert in forensic risk assessment. This is a field that many very smart people have dedicated their whole careers to. But based on my amateur reading of the literature, the social science tests and scales that we've devised so far to try and assess the risk of recidivism for sex crime cannot claim sufficient scientific validity or accuracy. This leaves society in a pickle, where the freedom of the individual is weighed against perceived risk to the community. I don't pretend to know the answer to this riddle, which is why I think we need to focus more on changing the trajectory of the community and less on attempting to predict the future of an individual. What I mean is, if we genuinely embraced feminism and started teaching our kids explicitly in schools at all ages that men have no right to abuse women, and then we formed an entire social culture around this message, to my mind, that feels like the surest way to reduce the risk of future sex crimes. Now, there will always be outliers. There will always be sociopaths who take pleasure in violating social norms and harming vulnerable people. But we need to look at this problem holistically and in terms of prevention, not just through the lens of punitive retribution. To me, we're just going to get more bang for our buck that way. Here's a weird question. Do children have sexualities of their own? The answer is yes, they do. But it's very difficult for us as grown-ups to understand children's sexuality because kids experience sexuality so differently from how adults experience theirs. The main difference between childhood and adulthood sexuality is that grown-ups have a lot of psychological baggage around sex. Moral baggage, for example, most of us were taught that sex is sinful or evil as well as personal baggage related to how we ourselves have been treated sexually, how we think about sex, our relationship with our own libido, sexual dysfunction, 
how much access we have to the kinds of sex we want. Lots and lots of baggage, etc., etc. But for kids, sexuality just isn't complex in those ways. For kids, sexuality is just another domain of development, like motor skills, social relationships, language acquisition, sensory processing, a domain of functioning that kids figure out through experimentation and through what adults teach them and what they learn in school, just like the other ones. More than half of children engage in sexual play with other kids before puberty, and most of the time this is nothing to be worried about. So if you're a parent, for example, and you find your kid doing something sexual with another kid, the questions that you want to ask are, is the play consensual? And are the kids of roughly the same age and or developmental status? If the answer to both questions is yes, then most likely you should not freak out and you shouldn't shame your kid or punish them for doing sex stuff. That's a great way to get your kid to associate sex with shamefulness. If, however, the sexual play falls outside those parameters, for example, it wasn't consensual or there's a big age difference between the kids, then you may want to start asking more questions to determine if something problematic is taking place. A really good short pamphlet on this subject is called Understanding Your Child's Sexual Behavior, What's Healthy and Natural by Tony Cavanaugh-Johnson. But the point here is that the reason children are not capable of consenting to sex with an adult is because even though they have sexual curiosity, and even though they're able to achieve arousal and orgasm, they do not understand what sex means. They don't understand how sex can be used either to nurture somebody or to cause harm. And they definitely do not understand that it can have long-lasting consequences on your life. Kids just don't get that. They're too little, which is why they can't consent to sex with a grown-up. And it's wrong for adults to pretend that they can. But this is where we confront the fundamental arbitrariness of the concept of age of consent. Why is the age of consent 14 in Italy, but 18 in Florida? Is an Italian 14-year-old as psychologically mature as an 18-year-old Floridian? Probably not, but the issue, once again, is that we're trying to attach a number to something that can't be quantified. This reminds me of when I was a Child Protective Services social worker, and part of my job was to help families parent their kids safely. A very common issue that arose again and again was around having older children supervise and babysit younger children if the parents weren't home. So there's no law that determines how old a person has to be before they can babysit another person. Every single situation I dealt with was case by case. And in the course of doing that job, I met 11-year-olds who were definitely mature enough to watch younger siblings. And I also met some 17-year-olds who I wouldn't trust alone with a microwave. But society has decided to legislate the issue of age of consent. And I agree with that move because it's important to keep kids safe sexually. Kids can do sex stuff with each other in a consensual, exploratory way until their late adolescence, which seems old enough for them to decide whether they want to do it with a grown-up. I would rather err on the side of caution because the consequences of negative sexual experiences on young minds can be traumatic. So back to understanding the epidemiology of pedophilia. One way to examine the problem is through the lens of child pornography. Like all kinds of porn, child porn has totally exploded, both in terms of production and consumption, since the internet was invented. As such, we can deduce that there are a lot more men who are sexually interested in minors than we previously thought. 
Back before the internet, in order to access child pornography, you often had to be a member of a secret group that had secret mailing lists and secret meetings. That is to say, you'd have to be really, really motivated to access that type of porn in order to take that much risk and put in that much effort. So for a guy who has, say, a slight sexual interest in minors, but who is largely sexually content with adults, that person would have very little incentive to try that hard to get child porn. But with the internet, child pornography became widely available to lots and lots of people who were living these really normal lives as husbands and fathers, but who had, as some component of their sexual makeup, a sexual interest in minors, even though they generally preferred adults. This is why the rates of consumption of child porn increased so drastically, with the rates of production then following demand. The point is that pedophilia and hebephilia rarely appear to be a guy's exclusive sexual interests, which is to say most men interested in minors are also interested sexually in adults. For the majority of men who are on that spectrum, pedophilia and hebephilia can be understood as part of a broader constellation of sexual interest. Sexuality is just pretty complex like that. For example, another thing that we know about Jeff Epstein is that he dated and had sex with lots of adult women too. So his hebephilia was of the non-exclusive subtype. As for exclusive pedophilia, that is, men who only experience sexual arousal from prepubescent minor children, which is what people usually mean when they say pedophilia, even though it's the vast minority of people who have that attraction, the best estimate given by the most respected scholar in the field, Michael Seto, is about 1% of all men. Which brings us to the other important subcategory when discussing pedophilia, and that is egosyntonicity. Egosyntonic is an adjective that describes whether a particular decision is aligned with your personality and your belief structure. So for example, for me, being a therapist is a super egosyntonic activity because I have a very open personality, and I also believe that it's important to express yourself emotionally. And for me, being a cop would be the opposite experience. That is to say, it would be egodystonic because exercising power over other people and using violence and force go against who I am and what I believe in. In the same way, there is egosyntonic and egodystonic pedophilia. An egodystonic pedophile is somebody who is sexually attracted to kids, but understands that kids are not capable of consenting to sex, and that an adult having sex with a child is wrong. An egosyntonic pedophile, on the other hand, is somebody who believes the opposite, that it's okay for an adult to have sex with kids. This type of individual is the one who genuinely poses a real risk to society. Most consumers of child pornography can probably be described as egodystonic, non-exclusive pedophiles or hebophiles. But having worked with this population clinically, one thing I have found is that they frequently lie to themselves that looking at child pornography isn't harmful because they themselves aren't abusing children. In fact, by consuming CP, they are stimulating demand for the production of more CP, which motivates actual abusers to expand the supply in order to meet demand by harming more children. Egodystonic exclusive pedophiles, guys who experience zero attraction to adults, but know that having sex with kids is wrong and bad. These are among the most psychologically tortured individuals that I have met in my entire career. 
For them, therapy consists of helping them to manage their shame and to create and enact safety plans so that they never follow through on their sexual fantasies that they have about kids. Sometimes psychiatrists can prescribe them medication to reduce their sex drive. Interesting side note here, antidepressant medications of the SSRI class are sometimes used for this specific purpose because of how they are known to thoroughly obliterate a person's sex drive. As I mentioned previously, when it comes to pedophilia, I share the opinion of some scholars that pedophilia is a sexual orientation, like being gay, like being straight. Pedophilia is understood by researchers to be fixed, unchangeable through any psychiatric intervention. When discussing paraphilias and fetishes, the targets of attraction are generally thought to be fixed. And in fact, just like they used to do all kinds of stuff to gay people to try to make them straight, similar efforts have been employed over the years using behavioral conditioning to quote-unquote cure men of pedophilia. It just doesn't work. It turns out that you just can't help what turns you on. But what you can help is whether or not you sexually abuse a child. So what do you do if you're struggling with pedophilic thoughts or fantasies? There are no great answers here either. In Germany, for example, there is at least one publicly funded clinic where men can go to confidentially receive treatment if they're worried that they will sexually abuse children. They even have the equivalent of a 1-800 number you can call, which they advertise in public as a PSA, to encourage men to get help managing problematic sexual urges. I think this is a really good approach. Here in the United States, your best bet would be to consult a sex therapist. They would be required to keep the information shared with them confidential under health privacy laws unless the therapist specifically finds out about a child being actively abused or there's a plan to abuse a specific child or a child was abused by the client in the past and it was never reported, at which point they would have to call Child Protective Services or the cops. This idea of spending public money on a clinic for potential sexual abusers really interests me because imagine the uproar we would have if there was a city or a state-run hospital trying to start up a similar program here in the United States. Conservatives would totally freak out. But in fact, I think that this is an important form of harm reduction. Once again, we need to be focused on trying everything possible to prevent child abuse. But the unfortunate reality is we do not have enough money in our healthcare system to create such a program to divert potential abusers, even though it's desperately needed. And that's because there isn't enough money in the system to properly fund services for victims of sexual violence. See also our national backlog of untested rape kits. This problem that we can't fund services for perpetrators because services for victims get priority is rooted in an idea known as the scarcity model, which is to say, when we presuppose that there is a scarcity of public resources, when we start from a position of saying that there just isn't enough money for all the programs we need in order to live in the society we want, for example, a society without childhood sexual abuse, when that's our attitude, then those of us who believe in human rights end up fighting over scraps and competing amongst ourselves to fund crucial programs that will never have anywhere near enough money to do the job right. This is the world that many social workers operate within, where we take underfunding as a given. Well, I call bullshit. I think that rich people and large corporations are insanely undertaxed, and that military budgets are bloated beyond belief, 
and that these groups are literally stealing money that is owed to the public in the form of housing, education, and healthcare programming. Regarding the scarcity model, a comparable phenomenon has unfolded in the realm of services for victims of intimate partner violence, also known as domestic violence. Back in the 1970s, when the anti-domestic violence movement started up due to the efforts of feminists, there was a lot of attention paid to the root causes of domestic violence, which is, of course, patriarchal attitudes by men who considered beating their spouses to be their right, as well as larger community tolerance for male violence against women. In the beginning, services for abusers were understood to be as important as services for victims. But now, decades later, as the movement has been starved of necessary funding, the victim services side cannot keep up with the demand for shelter beds, counseling, housing options, and other forms of support for victims of domestic violence. So when I was doing social work and I would be trying to find a place for a woman fleeing an abusive partner to go to, I already knew before I picked up the phone that every domestic violence shelter I called was going to have a wait list. Services for abusers, meanwhile, have almost entirely dried up, and the ones that do exist are generally based on outdated, ineffective models. For example, the Duluth model, which frequently insists on alleged abusers admitting to the contents of police reports in order to graduate from the program. Unfortunately, we know that the police cannot be trusted to file reports accurately, which creates problems for therapists attempting to assist abusers. But this is what the scarcity model does. It forces us to focus only on one aspect of a public health problem. And if we dare demand sufficient funds to address a problem holistically, then we get called communists. But the ones who lose out in that fight are the victims of violence, which is why we really, really need to claw back all of the billions of dollars that have been stolen by the wealthiest in society. So yes, I am drawing a direct connection between rich people refusing to pay taxes and the ongoing sexual and physical abuse of women and children in this country. I refuse to accept the scarcity model as the norm for the society that I live in. One of the things I'm trying to do with this podcast is make the claim that politics really matters on the individual level, particularly for vulnerable people. Everyone is obsessed with what a buffoon Donald Trump is, but his Republican bootlickers and plenty of elected Democrats, in fact the majority, are responsible for enacting policies which, for lots and lots of people in this country, mean the difference between having a safe place to sleep or not, being exposed to sexual violence or not. Politics on the macro level frequently trickles down to the micro level in the form of trauma, and the shape of policy influences the rates and distribution of trauma within society. I want to see policy debates framed in these terms, in terms of whether or not a particular social policy will reduce the likelihood of vulnerable people experiencing trauma. To me, reducing trauma is the most ethical lens to use when debating public policy. Is human suffering increasing or decreasing? Conservatives believe philosophically that the purpose of government is to increase individual freedom. But individual freedom is not just about the freedom to do something. It's also about freedom from stuff. Freedom from abuse, exploitation, freedom from homelessness and poverty, for example. What about those forms of freedom? Those are the ones that matter to me more than the freedoms conservatives seem to be obsessed with, which is 
hoarding resources and automatic weapons. Okay, we have covered a lot of ground, and I know that we are a bit all over the place, but that's because sexuality is complex, and it touches on so many aspects of individual and social psychology. But there's one last item for us to look at in connection with the issue of pedophilia, and this is what they call the cycle of abuse theory. The idea that men who sexually abuse children are the ones who were themselves sexually abused as children. So research has not demonstrated this theory to be true in the sense of causality, that one leads to the other. Of course, it's complicated. Some abusers do have histories of childhood sexual abuse, others do not. Of the ones who do, it's too simplistic to assume that it's because they were sexually abused that they became sexually abusive toward others. Motives for perpetrating sexual abuse are rarely cut and dry in that way. Another problem with this theory is that it further stigmatizes victims of sexual abuse by portraying them as abusers waiting to happen. In fact, very few victims of sexual abuse go on to perpetrate sex crimes against others. Nevertheless, when people do stop to consider why somebody is a pedophile, this is usually the first and last explanation that anybody comes up with. The cycle of abuse theory is enduringly popular among the public, but it's important to acknowledge that the cycle of abuse theory was previously applied to queer people, to gay men and lesbians. One guy I know, nice guy, he grew up in a very educated family. When he came out to his parents as gay, the very first thing they said to him was, who sexually abused you and when? Many social conservatives still think like this, of course. But why is that? My read is, the idea that individuals are born queer is difficult for conservatives to tolerate because they are homophobic, and we can notice how as homophobia has decreased within certain sectors of American society, we have become less likely to encounter the cycle of abuse theory applied to gay men and women anymore. It's been replaced by the theory of born this way. But it feels more challenging to bring ourselves to apply that logic to pedophilia, because pedophilia is too abhorrent to us psychologically. And again, I want to state unequivocally that pedophilic acts are abhorrent to me 100% of the time. But having pedophilia, while deeply unfortunate and problematic and associated with significant risk of harm, it just is. It's a part of nature. It's not a great part of nature, it's not a part that I'm excited about, but it's a part that we're stuck with. And in this way, coping with pedophilia as a society has a lot in common with our conversation about coping with addiction as a society. Many people like to experience altered states of consciousness through alcohol and drugs, moralizing about it by shaming people who use substances, only drives substance use underground where it becomes more dangerous. Our priority as a society should be eliminating overdose deaths, reducing the other peripheral forms of harm that come to people from using substances, and increasing access to treatment, rather than taking a moral stance about substance use itself. Because the reality is, I use substances, and so it's not my place to judge others who do. This way of thinking is called harm reduction. Similarly, harm reduction for pedophilia would acknowledge that being attracted to minor children is not something people choose. It's what their brains tell them interests them sexually. So how can we accommodate this reality while also reducing the threat of harm to minors? Most likely, we can do this by seeking to engage men with pedophilic interests in different forms of treatment. Ego dystonic pedophiles 
the ones who know it's wrong to harm kids but are attracted to them anyway, will be interested in therapeutic options if they are accessible, affordable, confidential, and effective. Egosyntonic pedophiles may be more difficult to engage, which is why it is so crucial to dismantle the patriarchy. We need to change the way men think about being entitled to sex. There's another debate going on right now regarding something called simulated child pornography. So given that we know that lots of guys, including quote-unquote normal married men who do not live full-time as pedophiles, are aroused by the idea of sex with children, would it be better for society if these men were accessing cartoons or drawings depicting sex acts with kids as a way to reduce demand for actual child pornography? Is virtual child porn generated by computers with no kids harmed in the process a legitimate form of harm reduction? This is an important ethical and philosophical question, especially given that at least one researcher has documented a connection between an increase in the availability of child pornography and a decrease in in-person child sexual abuse. As for Jeffrey Epstein, he fucking sucks. But I, for one, am sad that he is dead because I wanted him to name names. Anyhow, it's important to acknowledge that the temptation to dehumanize Epstein is enormous. However, I encourage us to resist that temptation, to resist the pull of projective identification. Because if we dehumanize Epstein, then we become like him because he dehumanized his victims. Instead, we should humanize him as much as possible, which for me means viewing him as a combination of complex factors, as possessing sexual interests which he didn't choose, which were assigned to him biogenetically, and simultaneously as a person who is a product of the social culture within which he was operating, a culture that taught him that wealthy people, white people, that cisgender male people get to do whatever the hell they want regardless of the human rights of those around them. Because nobody chooses to be a pedophile or a hebephile, just like nobody chooses to be gay. But the kind of society that you live in, whether or not you're conditioned by the social environment to think that having a dick means you get to do whatever you want with it, exerts significant influence over the risk of sexual abuse of minors actually occurring. Thanks a lot for listening to Episode 7 of A Feminist Therapist. My name is David Averick. I appreciate your time. If you'd like to be in touch, just send me an email at a feminist therapist at gmail.com. Take care, and I'll talk to you next time.